Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I am Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Friday, November 10th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website, click on the two words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner. It will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again?, And that chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for 19 years to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, It will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We hope people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively engage in the use of these tools. And secondarily, because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, we would appreciate you doing so by giving us a call at 563-999-3581. If you call that number and press 1 on your phone, it'll put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. 
And as time allows, I'll turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code, and we can have a conversation. You can also email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org, and or you can email genie at j-e-a-n-i-e at whyagain.org. That's w-h-y-a-g-a-i-n dot o-r-g. We greatly appreciate whenever anybody does that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention we have with this work is to be a service. And that's just a lot easier to do when we know how these things are landing for people and what they're finding the most value in and what would be of most service to them moving forward. So today's a Friday, and yesterday we just did more reading from the Way of Mastery in the second lesson. And there's plenty of time for comments and questions. I think we had a little comment and question at the beginning of yesterday's hour, first hour. And then the, most of it was spent um, on lesson two from the Way of Mastery. So there's plenty of time to take a comment, a question, an answer, a testimonial, and or a suggestion. I've had um, the pleasure, the honor, whatever you want to call it, to have two different interviews so far this week. One of them with a woman who actually does the reading of your eye, photos of your eye, and then does a an active mentoring coaching session with you, giving things you things to work on, and then watching changes in the eye as the eye as they've discovered. People have worked with iridology and the maps of the iris and the pupil and other parts of the of the eye for lots and lots of years, and this is building on that in a way. And um, the other one was a woman who's made the transition and uh, is now a transition coach, helping other people make a transition to their true self. And those will be published in the next few weeks on uh, journeystream.org slash podcast or onyourmindpodcast.org. And that's a little... Another thing I've donated my time to over the past almost four years now to try and help this nonprofit working to change the the narrative on mental health to one in which optimal health and well-being are possible and expected. So you can get access to over 145 podcasts if you go there, 610, you're in the air? Yeah. Are you there, Sue? Sue? So is this Tim yeah, Bingham? I'm on. Uh, this is Tim Bingham. I have been working on a Diedrich Waldack six-step worksheet and I need your help on it. All right. 
I'm going to turn my volume up, and I'll ask you to speak directly into your phone. Okay. So that Is that we better? Can... Well, everything you can do to speak right into the mouthpiece will be good, and I turn my volume up so I can hear you better. So okay. how can I support you here? Well, um, I'm working on a, a time when I was about four years old, and um, I had been very much loved as an infant. And then my father came around when I was about four, and he seemed very angry, and and I didn't know what was going to happen. I thought I might be thrown out of the house, and I was extremely anxious. And every morning when I wake up, I relive that event. Um, so that's my feeling. And then I get to step four of the worksheet, and it says, is this a familiar feeling? And I say, yes. It seems to be etched in stone. Um, like I'm going to jump out of my skin. I'm so afraid. And my father is mysterious. I can't figure him out. I think he's he hates me. Um, and then... Is this the first time I felt it? No, I've felt it all my life. Every feeling is something I have felt before, either in utero or ages one to eight. Well, ages one to eight, yes. When did I first feel this? About age four, I'd say. If I stay in the feeling, I'll be taken to a memory that probably has nothing to do with the event. That just happened, and that's where I'm sort of stuck. Okay. So, Tim, let me help you clarify something here. This worksheet, the Diedrich Wolzak worksheet, is most often used when you're living your life today as an adult, the present moment, day to day, and you have a negative feeling a negative upset, a tension, a frustration, an anger, a grief, or whatever. And that's right. where you start. It sounds to I me like today. it sounds to me I like you're starting with now. Okay. But it sounds to me like you're starting with the memory of being four years old and having your father come home. Well that's behind the feeling of anxiety now. But I'm not at peace right now because of that feeling so deep in me. So it ties to the here and now. So in the moment when you're feeling the anxiety, the fear, the panic, whatever, when it takes you back to your four-year-old memory of your father coming home and your having the thought, I may get kicked out of the house because he is so negative towards me. That's what he's referring to. Yes. But I don't know how to get beyond that. You don't need to get beyond that. What you need to do then is go have a a conversation, of a visualized interaction with your four-year-old self and ask your four-year-old self 
okay, little Tim Bingham, what did you make it mean about you when your dad came home and was so harsh? Yeah, what I you, made it. What, I I made, made it mean what? I made it feel like there was something terribly wrong with me. Something was terribly wrong in the situation, and I was about to be kicked out of the house. Okay. Start with this first statement you made. Something is terribly wrong with me. Yeah. And if there is a specific thought when you're literally having the visualization of interviewing the four-year-old Tim Bingham. Don't stay up in your head. Have a visualization. Breathe and soften. Close your eyes. See yourself as the adult. Walk into the scene with you, four-year-old Tim Bingham, just the way you looked at four years old. And visualize talking to that younger Tim Bingham and asking him, asking him, as specifically as he can tell you, what did he make it mean when his dad came home and was so harsh? What did he make it mean about himself? It meant that there was something terribly wrong with him in Bingham and he would have to leave or be killed, one of the two. Okay. And so is there any, as you interview him, is there any specific flavor of what is wrong with him, what he's not able to do that his mother or his father wants him to do? Or is it just well, that... He's unlovable. He's unlovable. He's faced with hatred coming from this steely-eyed, angry father. And um, it's a terrible, terrible situation. It's so bad that he can't stand it. And he needs to get away from the feeling it's so bad okay so then the rest of this worksheet from the Diedrich Wolzak perspective is now we, we go into step six and step six is that you say as the four-year-old you help your four-year-old say I forgive myself for believing there was something wrong with me, for believing the the negative about me. So go into your visualization and visualize yourself as the four-year-old being coached by your adult self to say, I forgive myself for believing there's something wrong with me. Okay. I forgive myself for believing that there was something wrong with me. And then okay. say, thank, thank goodness that's not true. 
Thank goodness that's not true. That was never true. That was never true. And then you want to coach the younger Tim Bingham to say, I forgive myself for forgetting that my value is internal and unchanging. Okay, I forgive myself for forgetting that my value is internal and unchanging, like my soul. Exactly. And then you want to say it as the adult. I forgive myself for forgetting that my value is internal and unchanging. And I forgive myself for believing the false statement that there's something horribly wrong with me. Thank goodness that's not true. That was never true. The problem I have here is that the memory and the feeling of something being wrong is like in concrete. It's it so is. Listen, 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 Tim Bingham, you didn't do the second part, right? You, you, you backed away from actually doing the practice and started complaining about the process. So... Instead of that, okay. get centered okay. as yourself today, as okay. an adult, and say, I forgive myself for ever believing these false statements about me, that there was okay. something wrong I forgive, with me. I forgive myself for ever believing that there was something wrong with me. Thank okay. goodness, or thank God it was never true. Thank God it was never true. And just breathe into that and feel what what might want to argue against that for you and or any energetic shifts that happen. And then take a breath and say, I forgive myself for forgetting that my value is completely internal and unchanging. Okay, I forgive myself for forgetting that my value is completely internal, is my soul. And unchanging. Unchanging. If it helps, you can repeat statements like, I have value simply because the Creator put the breath of life in me. Yeah. I have value because the Creator, God, put the breath of life in me as my soul. And that value is internal and unchanging. And that value is internal and unchanging. And now visualize being with that four-year-old. How is he feeling? Well, he is 
eager to believe those things that you have just said, that he has just said that he is, in, his value is internal and unchanging. He's eager to believe that. So join with him and say it again. Join with him as the adult. Reassure him. This is true. Okay. This is it is true. possible to it's possible to forgive yourself for forgetting that your value is internal and unchanging. Okay, it is it's possible, possible to forgive my it's possible to forgive myself for forgetting that my value is internal and unchangeable unchanging. And it's possible to forgive myself for believing this false statement. It is possible to forgive myself for believing this false statement. That there's something horribly wrong with me or that I'm unlovable. Yeah. And breathe and soften and tell me how you're feeling now. Well, I feel the little boy is feeling hopeful that he can be feeling that his value is unchanging and internal to him. Internal. Not it's not dependent internal. upon any yeah it's not dependent upon anything he says or does or what anybody else thinks about him that's that's what we mean by internal right it isn't you know you yeah. don't have value because you set the table the right way you don't have value because you you know bought your mom some pretty flowers or you said please and thank you you have value just because there's the breath of life in you. Yeah. Now, what I usually do with people when we do work like this is I give them the assignment to meet with, to connect with that younger self in a visualization every day for a while. Okay. And go back and see the four-year-old Tim Bingham and just take a breath, get centered, visualize the four-year-old, visualize yourself as the adult being with him, and then just simply say to the four-year-old, what do you need from me to feel better right now? And maintaining the connection, the conscious awareness that I'm the four-year-old all grown up. The four-year-old is me. And that awareness helps the four-year-old have a more expansive view of life and helps the four-year-old bring up old negative conclusions like this, question them anew, see them as false, and let them go. Okay. I'll do you that. Want to, you want to literally do a visualization 
where you go back and connect with and embrace and comfort your four-year-old self with the knowledge yeah. of this exercise and the knowledge that his value and your value are internal and unchanging with the knowledge that it was a, a mistaken belief in a very difficult traumatic situation that a four-year-old created and downloaded that ever had him believing there was something wrong with him it's just a mistaken belief Okay, the mistaken belief. And I shouldn't go back and try to analyze my father, right? That's No, it has nothing to do with anything other than he was very wounded. He was a person who hadn't learned these kinds of tools. He was a person who was doing the best he could with whatever resources he had, and he, you know... What you were experiencing from him if he was harsh and angry is woundedness. You weren't experiencing any anything that was a reflection of your value and you weren't experiencing anything that was a reflection of his value. You were only experiencing the reflection of his pain and suffering that he didn't know how to deal with. Right. And his pain and suffering wasn't about you. Right. Okay. So take a breath and, and think about this and think about how I, I believe you said in the beginning of our call that every morning when you wake up, you have this feeling. Yeah. Is it literally every morning? Well, I I feel extremely anxious, and if I go through the anxiety, I go back to this four-year-old. Okay. Being so afraid. So so think about it right now, and visualize getting up tomorrow morning. What do you notice? Is the intense anxiety there, just thinking about waking up tomorrow morning? Can you visualize no. waking up tomorrow morning and feeling like as you wake up, you greet your adult self and you greet your four-year-old self Yeah. with a welcoming hug? I can visualize that. It's such a radical... Change for a four-year-old boy to believe that he's his value is internal and in his soul is such a radical idea. Because he was and that's so, why we want you to go back. We want you to go back and and actively visualize being with him and coaching him to the truth of that, and coaching him if you need to to say again. I forgive myself for forgetting this about me and or I forgive myself for believing this negative which was never true. Right. right. What does it mean I forgive myself for that? 
why does it say I forgive myself? Because without realizing it, what Diedrich Wolzak is doing is helping us dismantle false beliefs. And the word forgiveness from the ancient Aramaic is about, is about canceling and dismantling. So the idea is that you're, when you say you forgive yourself, you're saying, I dismantle this false belief. And I restore this accurate belief that I am worthy and my value is internal. And I dismantle the false belief that I downloaded when I was four years old that said, "I'm I'm not worthy, I'm unlovable, there's something horribly wrong with me. Right. I like that word, dismantle. That's exactly what this means. I put it down, okay. I cancel it, I dismantle it. I so see it as false. Aramaic, Aramaic meaning of forgiveness. It's not the colloquial meaning of forgiveness. Exactly, exactly. The work that Diedrich Wolzak did comes predominantly from the Course in Miracles, and it has the same meaning as what Michael Rice derived from The Course in Miracles and the Kabor's Manuscript and what I find also in The Way of Mastery which is to forgive means to dismantle a negative and therefore a false perception. It's an inside job. You're helping your four-year-old self recognize that he was doing the best he could at four years old trying to make sense of a very, very unpleasant and scary situation and he drew a false conclusion that it was about him. And all we're right. doing is helping him dismantle that false belief and restore awareness to the true nature of him and his value. Right. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And so think about it this way. You've been carrying around this belief in this part of your mind that thinks it's still four years old and still thinks this is happening with Dad being so negative and intense and angry and afraid for his life, etc. And you've been carrying it around for a lot of years, decades now. So it may take more than just one or two repetitions to help clean that up and to help your four-year-old part of your mind awaken to the truth that it was just an error in thought. So be willing to do this exercise of visualizing being with your four-year-old self as the adult and stepping him through this process and or stepping him through the reality management worksheet Because there's a good bet that the four-year-old was holding a goal that I want to feel safe and loved in my own home. Yeah. And you could put that on a worksheet as your four-year-old self to great advantage.
Well, I like the idea of going back and visiting a four-year-old and saying, what can I do to help you now? Well, I like, um, I like not, that. Not, 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 not so much what can I do to help you now, but the words are, what do you need from me? What do you need to, from me? To feel better right now. Okay. What do you need from me to feel better right now? And since well, you're the adult the who's doing the visualization, you can go anywhere. You can make this visualization be that you're with anyone you choose anywhere in time doing anything. So if he says, if your four-year-old self says, I need you to get me out of here to safety, I need you to take me home with me, you can visualize doing that. If he says, I just need a hug, or I need to know that I'm safe here, you can visualize a way to help him feel that. Okay. And... Should I go ahead. should I build in the visit with a four year old as a as a daily routine? Because yes, it, I would do that for at least a week. At least a week. Longer okay. if it feels good. Okay, at least a week. Well, thank you. Dr. Tim. You're welcome. And the other thing you can do is you can do a worksheet as though you were the four-year-old and and have the goals on there, like I want my dad to be gentle and loving with me. I want to feel safe in my own home. And then when you cancel those goals, watch what comes to mind from recent or distant past, and you continue the processing that way. Both of these worksheets will help interacting, kind of like uh, fingers interlacing. So is there anything else I can do for you? No, that's good. Thank you. That's very helpful. Okay. We had somebody else raise a hand, so I'll leave you unmuted just in case uh, okay. they want to address this. 828, you're in the air. Hello, this is Magda. And um, I'm calling to congratulate both of you, Dr. Tim and Tim Bingham, and tell you how very wonderful what you just did was for me, at least, and probably many other people. Um, it just... It's giving me some ideas about how I can continue to help my little kid memories be removed and forgiven and to be able to feel safe. I really like the idea of the daily visitation, and that is great homework that I will do. I'm going to apply that for, for my situation. 
So thanks, guys. That was great. And I, that's all I wanted to do was just to plug that in. And uh, if there's anyone else, let's open up okay. the airwaves. Thank you, Maga. It's nice to hear your voice. <laughs> you too, Tim. Thank you for for making the call and being willing to go through the whole process. It really okay. illustrated it illustrated for me the the how to um, rather than just reading the book. Actually, hearing that process was pretty cool. Yeah. So that's it for me. Well, thanks. All right. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. I'll mute you so you can continue to listen. And Tim, any last comments before I put you on mute so you can listen in? No, I'll work on that for at least a week, and um, I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. Well, thank you again for the call and for being willing to do the work. Blessings. And. We're back with about 22 minutes left uh, for comments, questions, feedback, and questions about what Tim was just doing. Blending these worksheets. I, I, I only present things on this Internet show or in the support groups that to my eye and ear, are compatible, fully compatible with uh, the work that Dr. Michael Rice has done over the years that I've been exposed to anyway. And um, if at some level it is not striking you as compatible. We'd love to hear about that. And that's part of what Tim was just asking in the middle of that processing. What does this mean, forgiveness? Right? I forgive. Well, I hope I cleared that up. It's about dismantling a perception, particularly a false one. How do we know they're false? When they lead us feeling like they are negative or they leave us feeling negative in our energy system. A tightness, a tension, a contraction, a you know, negative emotional state. That's the signal that we use in this work to be aware, to be uh, um, alerted to the fact that whatever pictures we're showing ourselves, whatever whatever interpretation of life we've chosen in that moment is in error. And the forgiveness process is very specifically, in this work, it's specifically about dismantling those false perceptions. It's about canceling any goals we have and asking to be shown a new way to look at what minutes before our mind was showing us in a certain way, a certain negative interpretative way. We're going to get to it in the in the next in the third lesson of the way of mastery. But the the way of mastery in the third lesson has a definition for forgiveness, 
It says to forgive means to choose to release another, another person, from the perceptions you have been creating and projecting upon them or upon your mind's image of them. It goes on and says, forgiveness, therefore, is an act of forgiving or dismantling oneself and one's own projections. So I'm going to dismantle the false projections that I've created. And it's it's just like what we talked about in the promise before we even got into the reading of the lessons where it says, if you want to make progress on this pathway, you want to get on this pathway and move ahead, what you need to do are these three things. Cancel everything you think you know to be true. Put it aside. Cancel everything you desire, what you think you need. And thirdly, learn to look lovingly upon everything you've ever heard, seen, thought, felt, said, and done in your entire life as simply a creation a harmless neutral creation let yourself have that experience coach yourself to being loving to look lovingly upon every and the way it says it in the in the book is look lovingly upon every place that fear and I would add any of its stepchildren, have made a home in your mind. Look lovingly on any place in your mind where you're holding thoughts that generate negative, negative emotions. It's just, it's just a redirection of energy. There was never anything wrong with you. There can't ever be anything wrong with you. Your value is complete and safe and whole and internal. And when you hold on to an errant idea, a false belief, it just creates an experience, but it doesn't change your value. It can make you feel as though you're separate or separated from other people and things, but it never you can never be separated from your creator and or what your creator created you to be. Area code 808, you're in the air. Yeah, as I'm listening to the, this is Rama. Um, as I'm listening to this conversation, the phrase "giving forth" keeps coming into my mind over and over and over again. And okay, this this is Roma, I believe. Roma, let, yes, let me ask uh, you to say the let, let me ask you to say the phrase again. You're breaking up a little bit in my ear. What's the phrase? Giving, giving forth. Yeah. It's like okay, it's how, like the reversal so? of of the opposite of of the of holding it against ourselves. So giving forth with with our authentic, loving being. And you know, it's an energy flow of of your authenticity and, and the way God created us. Can you hear me? A little bit. It's breaking up. You're saying 
that it's a giving forth of your true loving self. And then I heard something about the way God created us. Yeah. Okay. So it, it, in that way, what resonates for me is the idea that Michael Rice says we need to be holding love, conscious, active, and present when something unlike love comes up. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Giving forth actual, of that loving nature? The actual moment of amazing magic in, in the forgiveness process is when when that energy flow reverses it's like, you know, if you had a river and it suddenly started flowing backwards, <laughs> you know, a complete reversal of the energy flow that, that, you know, has been established in many of us since childhood or whatever. And it's a giving forth of that new and, and loving energy. Anyway, it's no big deal. I just... Because I couldn't get it out of my mind, I thought I'm, the only the only thing I can do is to, is to call and share it. So, I did. okay, well, that's a wonderful idea, and it is you know to me it just resonates that bringing that energy, that loving energy, to my conscious awareness, and then I'm no longer blocking my experience of it, and then that's when everything transforms. Yeah, it, it's that energy begins to. Be fabric of your life well and and in this these teachings the point is that energy is the, the fabric of your life and when you hold a belief of something other than that you create an experience of false dream of separation or being less than in this case with tim bingham being unlovable or whatever but it's never been the truth. And that's why these processes like the worksheet or the Deidre Wolzak forgiveness process can work because the truth is true always. Wave Mastery says over and over again, you remain as you were created to be. And that's the truth that's true always. So the essence of this work is remembering that and removing any, any belief within you that says otherwise. Forth with who we are. Did it. you say and the giving? And did you say the giving forth of what we are? Of who we authentically are, which is pure love. Yes. Excellent. All right. Anything else you'd like to add? No. Just send my love to everybody. Everybody on the call and everybody on the planet. <laughs> oh, well, keep boy. doing that. Everybody everybody can use it. Okie doke. Aloha. All right. Blessing. So we've got about 10 or 12 minutes left. 563-999-3581. We had somebody with a hand up and they dropped it. So if you're curious, we have time if you want to put your hand up again. Our second hour today is going to be the second hour of Aramaicisms. And uh, I should highlight that for years now, this has been a, a DVD that people can buy. And the only way to get access to it would be to buy it. But now Michael and Jeannie, for whatever reason, feel the time is right to put it out there so that 
once these are played, as long as the archives work and hold, you'll be able to access these for free without having to buy the DVD. And um, Michael was you know, inviting people to listen to these hours yesterday, today, Monday, and Tuesday with a notepad at the ready so that if you have questions or comments as you listen to Michael Rice and Dale Allen Hoffman talk about the ancient Aramaic language and key words that have been either completely forgotten or translated very, very differently and sometimes translated almost as the opposite of their original meaning. And if you have comments or questions about that, make it a note. And then when Michael's back on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday next week, he would love to hear your comments or questions. He would like to extend the conversation. Um, and he's hoping that making this four-hour DVD set available for free is going to accomplish that purpose. So if you're so inclined um, during this second hour, uh, have a notepad, make some notes. Again, on Monday and Tuesday next week will be the uh, third and fourth hour of the Aramaicisms. And comments and questions are welcome. Nobody has a hand up. We've got about 10 minutes left. I think um, just for the purpose of the continuity, I won't read any more from The Way of Mastery. We'll pick that up on Monday. I will say that um, I encourage people to uh, call in, and somebody just did, area code 541. Yes, Celinda here. Welcome. Welcome. I just caught in on your work with um, Tim, and I really, really appreciate it, along with Magda and Roma, um, because I keep going back to the same issues that seem to be popping up for others of safety and wanting to be loved just as I am. And so... Um, I shall take your advice or your um, suggestions about um, doing this visualization with my little girl and uh, combining it with the worksheet. Um, when Roma was talking about giving forth, which is uh, what I would understand forgive to mean in relation to forgiveness, letting go and dismantling that which is false and giving forth then that which is true, uh, I flashed on surrender. And surrender, in my mind, is linked with the will. And surrender means to give back. It's different than submit, because I looked up the derivation of submit as well, and that is to put under. And so I thought I'd share that. 
that because all of a sudden I had a linking of the surrender with the forgive of our willingness with the gift of being healed. And it's our willingness that is the doorway or the portal into forgiveness for self and others. And I had a dream this morning about uh, shutting a door, and then I went to open it, and there was no knob on my side. So this is all coming together in amazing ways. And I've often thought of the process between the Holy Spirit and me as being an alchemical process of transformation. And so that kind of fits in with all of this in a way now that gives me more um, uh, uh, what is the word I want more encouragement to be willing to continue on with my work and to just do it as the innocent child at the way a mastery says and incorporate Wolzak's uh, method as well because they're simple and they work and they uh, they seem to touch both aspects of our brain the hind brain and the forebrain, and so I just thought I'd, and the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere, so thank you, that's all help. All right, well thank you for your comments, I'll meet you so you can listen to the second hour, the uh, second hour as I mentioned is going to be Aramaicisms part two, that second hour, I will remind us all that we come from love, we're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. This is your second hour. Kings won't like it if people are not controllable and live out of their nine-bit mind. And by and large, the nine-bit minds developed on the planet come from hostility and fear. As Dale was sharing, he's at this conference, and here are these guys arguing, raging at each other over the meaning of words. Rather than, what if we actually sat and, and experienced ourselves as the presence of love and let ourselves be taught? This elemental force that comes to us, by definition in Aramaic, will teach us the truth. You know, we're here to connect each person, not to some king's representative who wants to control your life and the output of your wealth, but rather, we're here to connect you with the spirit of truth, the energy that can guide you from the whole creation as to exactly what's coming down the pike and how to function out of that. And that makes you quite literally the offspring of God. You're designed to be there. Paul referred to it as the mind of Christ. Now, Paul had difficulty... Explaining how to live in that mind, you'll notice that when the stress was up and the chips are down, Paul says, why is it the things I would do, the experience I've had of full-blown light and love, I cannot do, and the things I hate are what I do. He did not know how to teach the process of forgiveness to release people from their carbon-based memory past and allow them to live in the mind that he spoke about wanting to get to, but didn't know how to get there. Why? He didn't understand the how-to. He never met the man. And he came from a mindset. If you think of who Paul was, Paul was basically a person who hunted and killed people for their religious beliefs. That's the base he comes from. 
That's a huge piece of work to break through from that kind of past. And when he's up against it, Paul says, I don't know how to do it. Here I am doing the things I hate again. We're going to talk a little later about the forgiveness process and how it empties out carbon-based memory and frees us so that we are available to this mind. Which, if you look at the mind of Christ, Dale, what, uh, what would be the best Aramaic well, understanding of that? You know, it, 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 it's an intriguing thought because there's, really, uh, there's really not a word in Aramaic that is exactly equivalent to Christos. Christos is an interesting term in Greek because what, what, if you, let's say you go to some kind of a most theological institutions, what are you usually told that Christ means? Anybody know? Christos. The first? Anointed one. There we go. Anybody know what anointing is? It's Christian, right? <laughs> yeah, they use it. Anybody know where anointing comes from? It comes from Egypt. Now, anointing was the sacramental process of uh, well, maybe we'll get later into this, but uh, of putting a sacred oil in a clockwise motion on what's called the third eye, the sixth chakra. I'll mention that a little later. Um, and what it was was as the third eye was opened, directly behind it is the pine cone known as the pineal gland in the geographic center of the brain. Um, by opening the third eye, it stimulated the opening of what was called the Christos chakra, which is the crown, which is where the crown of thorns, which is the sun rays, which is the halo. Intriguingly, the tongues of light. Yes. After the disciples were breathed. Yes, exactly. Exa or even better, let's look at this one. Let's look at some anti-Semitism. I'm getting excited now. Moses comes down off the mountain the second time, getting the, the rest of the Ten Commandments, and he's got horns! Intriguingly, if you look at like the, 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 uh, the statues from, um, what is it, Michelangelo? Moses has horns. If you look in lots of churches, Moses has horns. Let's talk look about the that Justice little. Building. Oh, yeah, in Here. the U.S. Justice Building. Now, um, let's talk about first how that started. Uh, in Jerome's Latin Vulgate, which was, that was when the Bible was translated from, let me briefly say this before I say this. Uh, if you grew up in a Christian church, you did not grow up with the Old Testament that Jesus would have grown up with. You grew up with the Septuagint, okay? You grew up with a Greek translation that... Ha and Septuagint is a word in 70... That, or 70. In Greek, that means 70, which is how many scholars worked on it over the course of 200 years. It was when it, the Torah was taken from... Hebrew into Greek and the rabbis of the day were screaming their brains out saying this is the absolute worst thing that could happen to the history of humanity because now people are going to think that only the top level peshat obvious metaphorical storyline is the only real truth here and they're never going to see the Ramez, the Darash and the Sod. We're going to talk about what that is later. Pardes, which is an acronym of the four levels of translation that eventually came into the word paradise. Created the word paradise. Saw it at the deepest level. Now, here it is, bring in just one little nuance of stories and all of a sudden people think it's about Adam and Eve and, and a snake and Cain and Abel having no clue about what's under that. We're going to go a lot deeper into that tomorrow. But what we start getting into here in the case of, uh, um, of Moses, uh, the, the, is it, what is it? I'm trying to, I wrote it down. Cornuta. Cornuta or Carnata? Cornuta is the Latin word that literally means horns. Now interesting, 
in Hebrew, the root word is karen. The word is karan. Karan. Interesting. And what that means is filaments or... Emanations of light. What's that? Emanations of light. Emanations of light. Filaments of light. Now, what was it he just did? He came down off the mountain. Maybe he did actually walk down off of a physical mountain, but we're looking at a very common Gnostic idiom. When one communes with God, it's the opening of the temple. You bring the temple, the high cloud, the energy system, the body temple, it gets opened. You take it to the pinnacle of the temple. Okay? The pinnacle of the temple doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus climbed up a bunch of bricks and stood at the top. Okay? I know that's cute. We're looking at a very common Gnostic idiom here. The pinnacle of the temple is the opening where you take the energy system to the place where, much like a balloon, you blow into a balloon and it gets to that point where it's like max capacity and all of a sudden you can see the places where it's thin and the places where it's a little bit thicker. It's the point of entropy, which means that unless you have willingness to allow any kind of residues in the system to be forgiven and removed, it's not going to be able to open anymore. Okay? It's only going to be able to open when you remove whatever blocks there are to its expansion. Now, when he's up here wide open and comes down, he's obviously going to be... Anybody ever have a great meditation or your friend was in a deep meditation and you look and they're just... Remember Maria? The radiation of light? Interesting. Somehow... Thanks to Jerome, bless your heart, my friend, uh, it turns into Moses having horns, which turns into an anti-Semitism that exists to this day. There's a great episode of Little House on the Prairie from season five. Um, it's embarrassing that I know this, but um, where uh, Albert was working for, Albert Engels was working for this old Jewish man who made caskets, and Nellie and Willie Olson were like, oh, well, my mom told me that you know, all Jews have horns. So Albert went and took one of the guy's hats and, and cut out two little holes in the top of the hat and took it to them. Oh my God, look! You know, look at it. So they went and uh, Nellie and Willie went and snuck up to the guy's workshop one afternoon and Albert was on the other side of the window with these ram's horns and like as soon as they opened the window to look in, he goes, and he goes screaming, running for like two miles. But that's the kind of insane thing that are based on something that's not even accurate or true. And I'll say this, and I can say this with an open heart and conscious, active, present love. Many of the people who are out there representing Christianity, even for six or seven decades, have no actual idea, not even the slightest clue of its actual, authentic history. They don't know about King James. If you're homophobic and you love King James, you might want to research the guy's family, okay? You might want to research him specifically and the relationships in his life. Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is blindness. I get a little bit amped about this because I, don't, I do understand why people don't look. Because they don't know how to forgive what comes up when that process happens. Difficult. Now, here's the thing. Yeshua said, if I gave you a light, would you hide that light below what? A bushel basket. A bushel basket. Let me tell you a little bit about the word bushel in Aramaic. Okay? These are all the beliefs that we hold. This is our carbon-based memory, the 666. I believe that Jesus was the only begotten Son of God. I believe that, um, whatever, we're born in original sin. Has anybody ever seen that line in the Bible? It's not there. It actually says you're born as the original blessing of life itself. Huh. It's a little different, isn't it? We just eat the menu served and we never get to the meal, don't we? All these different beliefs that we put on and then we wonder why we can't see anything anymore. 
Everything that we believe, everything we've got figured out. I'm an expert now on Jesus or the Bible. There's no humility, there's no open space. So what do we start doing? When we start forgiving, everybody sees that light now, right? It's obvious. Probably not. Anybody now? See the light? No. Oh, come on now. It's only three beliefs. This is your BS, as Michael calls it, your belief systems. You mean you're looking at still through a glass darkly? Very darkly. Oh, I got it. Very darkly. Okay. There's only one belief left. Everybody see that light? Does anybody see the light? Now, here's what happens. Instead of trying to add more into the system to convince yourself how correct you are and I've got it all figured out, when you actually start removing the roots of the bushel basket, bushel in Aramaic is the word sata. Sata. The root is sta, which means to slide, fall, or fragment something away from its source. Like as an example, if I'm standing next to a mountain and there's a rock and I take the rock off the mountain, if I say this is a rock, that's a mountain, not honoring that the rock is the mountain, that is what sata means. That's also what a blasphemy is. It means to remove something from its true source and to no longer see its relationship. Sata is the root of the word seitana, which is a word in Aramaic that means a being divided against itself. The character of Satan came hundreds of years later. The modern idea that Christianity has of hell, does anybody know where that comes from? Was it in the Jesus teachings? Was it even in the Greek Jesus teachings? No, it was not. Does anybody know where it comes from? Dante. Dante's Inferno, the Passion Play, the Divine Play, had nothing to do with the Jesus teachings. Do people know these things? Now here's what happens though, when you start removing bushel baskets, all of a sudden the light starts showing up. And you start, instead of trying to add things in, you start realizing that this is about removal. But what happens is as humanity starts to do this with these lights, all of a sudden humans start shining and glowing. And you can call that one the Buddha. Let's say this one's Krishna. Was Krishna an actual person? This one's Jesus, but we're in the West, so it's got to be a really big one. There's Jesus, right? Paramahansa Yogananda, a little more modern. Eckhart Tolle, the big guy. How many lights are there? One. Let me ask you another question real briefly before Michael chimes in. Before you go with that one, let's listen to, to Einstein where he says, if you think you're separate or separated from the rest of humanity, you're living in an optical delusion. Uh. What did Dale just show us? how the optical delusion works, the bushel basket. Stop covering your light with hostility and fear. King's teachings. You know, there's an, a sister word in Arabic of Satana. Satan is in Arabic also. Anybody know what the sister word in Arabic is for Satana, the being divided against itself? Sounds like this, jihad. There's two levels of jihad. The inner jihad, which is the inner higher turmoil, and the outer jihad, or the lower jihad, and it's amazing because in there, Muhammad says clearly in the Quran, I can guarantee you one thing, 99.9% .9 of the evangelical Christians that are slamming the Quran and, and, and uh, Islam have probably never read the thing. They've probably never read it. But it's clear that Muhammad says that you must first align that inner higher jihad, that which is within, before you project it out. And that's the funny thing, if it's aligned within, there's nothing to project out. And How many Yeshua lights? is mentioned more often in the Quran than Muhammad is. Absolutely. And Moses is in there. How many lights do I have? Not a trick question. Just one, right? You see the board? 
That's like humanity. We've got billions of souls on planet Earth. We're so sure that we're all so separate. And yet, how many lights are there? One. The more bushels we remove, that's how the new earth happens. It's not about us creating something. It's actually about us removing the blocks, removing the blocks that allow its natural expression. That's what forgiveness is. And the optical delusion comes from carbon-based memory and shows up in the 9-bit mind. And so when we're stuck in that 9-bit mind, we're actually stuck. There's, a, there's a, an interesting quote I found recently on the CIA website where they're working to understand how to create the best perception possible for their intelligence agents. And here's what the CIA is saying. We do not record reality. We generate reality. Reality for each person is generated by whatever fires in carbon-based memory literally is an energy that is painted on the inside of our eyeballs and we've been taught by kings and by the world that the picture we're looking on the, at the, in, on the inside of our eyeballs is actually out there. And it is not. Everything you've ever seen through your body's eyes is generated by the content of your mind and is a reflection of the content of your mind. And if hostility or fear is resonated in your carbon-based memory system, then you will create pictures of what you think are other people and you'll think you're actually looking at them when you're looking at a product of what's firing within you, painted on the inside of your eyeballs, and the energy of that hostility or fear emits a literal high-energy wave that is sprayed, measurable high-energy wave, that is sprayed on whoever you're looking at. If with your perception, that which you generate from within you, you refuse to be responsible and remove or forgive the content of hostility or fear, then you spray the acid of hostility or fear on the people you're looking at. How many who have the acid of hostility or fear sprayed upon them find that they respond really wonderfully to that and, and like it a lot and like to be around who, people who do that? No, that's just ridiculous. Yeshua speaks about the first law being a filter in the frontal lobes of the brain over intentions that allows only intentions keyed to love to be used to build these pictures. And now, when you follow that law, when you understand that that's what opens the space for human life to happen, then what you're spraying on all the world with pictures based in that is literally the active presence of love. Guess what's going to happen when you do that? People are going to respond differently. It's going to look miraculous. Gee, I did some forgiveness and removed some of my hostility or fear, and this person all of a sudden has become more loving with me. It's miraculous. It's not miraculous. You stop spraying the acid of hostility or fear on them and started spraying the active presence of love, the presence of your human life and extending that energy out. It's a measurable energy field. Dale has put some Aramaic letters on the board. 
Interesting, the Aramaic letters are 3D shadows of the spin of the atomic structure of the table of the elements. It's the only language on the planet that's based in elemental forces. And every other language, I realized when uh, Jeannie and I, we did seven countries last year, and about our third country, I realized that these people are speaking languages, and I don't have a clue what they're saying, but they seem to know what you know, this person is saying to them when they speak that language. And what occurred to me in about the third country is, ah, these languages are all Babel. We're babbling right now. This is Babel. We made something up what? to represent something, and what? we try to... Pardon me? What? 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 <laughs> <laughs> and and we, we try to make it the end-all and the be-all, but it doesn't represent the creation. It doesn't represent those elemental forces. Aramaic does, and that gives it a whole... And we'll talk about Rachma, we'll talk about Rukha as the elemental forces, so... Yeah, right here I've got, well, I've got two different words. Well, it's really the same word, um, but this one is more in syllables, okay? The word here is rochma, rochma, okay? Now, it's got three, you're going to see like the aleph here that's not included in the word down here. The first syllable sounds like this, ra, and that ra sound means a shining forth of heat and light, okay? It's the same as the word ray, Ray is also a Semitic root. That means shining forth of heat and light. Ray, Ra, Ora is an Aramaic root. Um, Raya, the rays, the sun rays, the crown of thorns. So this right here is a shining forth of light and heat, which is where we've got the Resh right here. Intriguingly, um, we're going to talk a little bit more about this in relation to the Torah tomorrow when we've got more time. Right here in the middle, which is this, we have hum, hum. That sound is a glottal stop. I'm originally from New Jersey. If you start a word with like hashuka, which is the word darkness, people either backhand you or run because they don't like the sound. But hum is the old Hebrew word for womb, okay, or interior place, center of being. Now, womb doesn't necessarily just mean the middle of the body. It also means the spiritual center, one of the things I love to use is from St. Augustine, which sometimes I say when I have that light pen, which is that God is a, a circle whose center is everywhere, but whose circumference is nowhere. I'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow in a Semitic term called surfing the leading edge of the cosmos. We'll get to that. Um, but we've got Ra, shining forth of light and heat from whom the center point or the inner spiritual womb, and the last sound is Ma. What does Ma mean? Just guess. Intriguingly, with linguists and anthropologists across the earth, ma is the sound most often uttered by a child in relation to the maternal figure in its life, whether it's in that language or not. Children naturally look at the mother and say ma. So you've got essentially like a birthing from the inner womb, that shining forth of light and heat. Now let me say a little funny stuff here. Looking at this coming from... Uh, in this Greek Septuagint, they had some problems here because with this being the spiritual center and the womb, there's also something behind the womb. What's right in this area here? The gut, the stomach. How about the intestines? Now, it's funny because you can actually look, and I have a great list. I probably should have brought these that I got from Rocco Erico years ago. Uh, like as an example, I believe this was Song of Solomon. 
Literally, it says this in the Septuagint, which is in the King James Bible to, to this day. It says, her husband put his hand in the hole of the door. Now, intriguingly, uh, this is, he's getting ready to leave on like a journey for many, many months or possibly longer. I believe he's a salesman. I don't remember. And she's like going through that thing because he's leaving. And it says, her husband put his hand in the hole of the door and her bowels moved for him. Does this sound good? Sound like a good... Uh... I don't think he's going to be coming home as soon as she thought he would. Okay, so he put his hand in the hole of the door to leave and she had a bowel movement. Um, that's a bad translation. Splugsnot would be the word in Greek, okay? Now, intriguingly, um, here's the thing though, it's not wrong, but it's also not right. Another aspect, does anybody know where the word dude comes from? Dude's an Aramaic word. Does anybody know what dude means? You used it when you were a kid. We were talking about dude earlier in terms of cowboy. It means from the bowels. It's an Aramaic term. Interesting. How many people knew that? So when people come up and say, dude, I'm like, yeah. Now, here's the thing, though. What's another way to, well, what's another way to phrase that, you know? When her husband put his hand in the hole of the door, she may never see him again. The example I give is a friend of mine, Tammy, who I grew up down the street with uh, in New Jersey, and she now lives in California, and her son has been all these, on all these tours of duty over to the Middle East uh, and into Asia. And there's, there's, uh, there was a time when she didn't know he was coming home. Her husband knew. She didn't know. And she just opens the door, and her husband's standing behind her, and she's like, like just absolutely wide open, seeing the face of that which you long for. That, again, is rachma. Rachma is the primary word for love in Aramaic, and it's also the primary word for friend, meaning that I recognize that, as, much like namaste, or in the words of Crazy Horse, Tashunko Witko from the Lakota, that I salute the light within your eyes where the whole universe dwells, because when you are at that center within you and I am at that place within me, we are one. And Rachma is a word that is completely, let's just be clear, completely lost in modern Christianity. It just isn't there. It's had so many bushel baskets piled on top that the teaching's gone. You know, back several years ago, we met with and worked a little bit with a group of Aramaic, native Aramaic-speaking peoples in Southern California, and we asked them about this word Rachma. And they said that in their tradition, the meaning had been lost. They didn't know what it meant. But that their tradition said it was the most pre precious jewel that you could possess. And in fact, is perhaps it's thought to be the tradition in marriage of a ring with jewels on it, that it, it symbolized that state. And it's two, twofold. It is this filter that in the frontal lobes of our brain, <coughs> intentions are stored, and there are basically three classes of intention. There are intentions based in hostility, which are destructive. There are intentions based in fear, which are negative. And there are intentions based in rachma, which are loving. When that filter is set, and this is what Yeshua says, when they ask him, what's most important in all this stuff you call law? And law has nothing to do with the rule of a superior. There's nothing to obey in the law. It's just having relationship with how things happen. You know, the law of gravity never punished anybody for stepping off a cliff. The law of gravity doesn't care what you think about it. 
It doesn't care whether you like it or you don't like it. You can't say tomorrow morning, I don't like the law of gravity, so I think I'm going to have my feet go up instead of go down. It's not <laughs> going to happen. The law of gravity just happens. All of these things are what happens. So when they say to Yeshua, what's most important in the law? He says, and, and they're basically asking him, how do you have a human life? He says, you must have Rachma. Here's how it happens. Your whole device, your body-mind unit, your mode of expression, the, things that, the thing that generates your picture on the world will be based in love. Your human life. It's the most important thing you could have. And when you look at the genius of that, you know, we see so many people who've, who've been basically hurt or experienced hurt within the context of their religious practice and so have blown it off. And, and you know, I've heard them speak about this, this silly book that comes from thousands of years ago that is just so ridiculous and so primitive. And they don't have a clue what's there the genius that's there in understanding how the energy patterns of this universe works and how we interface with it. And the first step is that of Rachma. It's the gateway that human life, that energy you experienced as a newborn energy, enters the form and it keeps the whole perceptual system on track with love, which is your highest and best and I promise you, if you're spraying love through your perception on everybody that you see, you're going to have a whole lot better time than if you're in that hostility and fear game and spraying that into your world. And so the genius of understanding how a human life works, that's all law is about. What's the first law? Rachma. Well, speaking of the first law, there's three versions of what's called the two commandments in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matai, Luka, or Matai Marcus, and Luca. Uh, they're all different in what one, in two cases, Jesus, says, Jesus, Yeshua says it in response to a question, almost a challenge really, a test. Um, and in the third one, the scribe actually recites it back because Yeshua says, you know, well, how do you read it? And he says it back to him. Uh, intriguingly, though, he's asked, what's the greatest of the nomosa? Now, nomosa is an interesting one. Um, let me actually, I want to hand this back to you for that, and then I'm going to expand customs. on what you say. Yeah, basically, what are the customs of the people? So, the scholars of the day have forgotten that there's a thing called cause law, and they're into effect rules. And so they say to him, what's most important in the nemosa? And he doesn't answer the most important thing in the nemosa. He answers the most important thing in the orita. He changes it. And it's interesting that one place where the scribe, it's in Luke, the scribe stands up to teach him. He says, you know, how do I inherit eternal life? And Yeshua knows this guy already knows and can parrot all the words. He's got it all in his head. And so he turns it back to the guy, and the guy parrots back the words, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And, and if you read that passage, you'll notice Yeshua doesn't say, that's the right answer. He says, you spoke the truth. When the man spits the words out, he then tells him what question that answer answers, and it's not the one about eternal life. He says to the man, do this and you shall live. What's Yeshua here to do? Bring you life. And when you really look at that passage, what you can hear Yeshua saying to the man is, sir, what business do you have asking about eternal life you're already dead. 
There is no life in you. You parrot words about love, but notice you want to test me. You're living in a hostility and fear-based mind. You've lost your human life. Here, listen to your own words. And in Aramaic, it doesn't say your neighbor as yourself, but rather in order to maintain self. If you have this condition of Rachma, the gateway for human life, and you think about the Creator or you think of neighbor, and in Aramaic, neighbor means anybody that you think about, if you maintain that condition, then you maintain your human life. This is how you have a human life. If hostility or fear comes in when you think of the Creator or neighbor, you've lost your human life, and Rachma is the key to regaining it, opening the gateway for human life to re-enter. And so he's speaking about what's at the cause level, orita, where you know, the minds of the day are saying, Nemosa, what's, what's, what's the most important custom we can tell these people? And he's giving them back, no guys, we need to go to cause law, not affect beliefs. Mm. You know, it gets so juicy when I listen to him, all these, it's like ideas rise up like corks on a lake and some of them just kind of fall to the side because bigger ideas come. Uh, neighbor, we'll have to get back to that a little too. Orita, what does that sound like? Ora, oreta, ora is that word light again. Ta genders the word feminine. This is a feminine law of light. What's the difference? Um, commandments. Does anybody know where the Ten Commandments? They're they're Christian or they're they're uh, Jewish, right? How many versions are in the the Torah and or the Old Testament? Anybody know how many commandment versions? Three. Hmm. Anybody know where they come from? They come from the Egyptian Book of the Dead, Spell 125, direct translation. Funny, a lot of people don't know these things, but this is what's more important when we use Namosa, which is a framework to live within. Yeshua wasn't here laying down laws for you to live within. He wasn't here to give you fresh commandments that are fresh fences for you to live within. You're fine as long as you stay in the fence. No, no, no. He was telling you to basically tear the fences down because the law is not something that you live within. The law lives through you when you let all else fall away. And the orita is the law of light that lives through you. And it's funny that he gets asked, what's the greatest of the commandments, which is also the word puktana in Aramaic, the commandments. What are the things I'm supposed to live within? And he doesn't even answer the question, which is a funny thing that happens to me in a lot of events. People ask me a question and I ask them a question and they're like, oh no, it's one of those kinds of people, huh? Because a lot of times the questions that are asked are often loaded with, not loaded, well yeah, they're loaded. It's like people ask certain things and having no real, I say this in, in just absolute love, no real knowledge of the extent of how many roots are in certain questions that they ask. And I know that if I give a really accurate answer sometimes that's comprehensive and accurate and authentic, either it's going to blow their brains out of their head, I mean that in a more of a metaphorical belief system sense, or it's going to send them in, you know, they're going to, it's going to be a catalyst and they're going to go into turmoil because they don't know that and they're not going to, how to know how to remove that and they're going to look at me and go, it's your fault. Intriguingly, Rachma is exactly that. In the fifth beatitude, Tuvehun lem Rachmadeh, Denehun Mehun Rachma. Intriguingly, this is the one that's translated as, blessed are those who give mercy for they shall obtain mercy. 
All I can say about the word mercy is I know it's really intimate for people that maybe were raised Roman Catholic, but that's like a 1% out of a 100% translation of that word. Okay? Let me give you an example of what I mean. Um, Let's say as an example that you've done a lot of this work and you've spent decades or even just a, a lot of commitment in removing your bushel baskets. And then you are, as an example... Standing in front of someone, the, the perfect example for me is when I, when I do water healing processes, I go into this place where it's like I'm not really there. It's just a complete shining forth of heat and light from the inner womb. And I don't mean my womb, I mean the center point of everything. And it's almost like I'm not there. And what happens is some people have amazing experiences of love and light and some people have experiences of absolute chaos and turmoil. And often they'll drop on the ground and they'll go through what Reverend Ron Roth called flight of the spirit, where there's like, almost like a recalibration happening. When you stand in front of someone, as an example, if you're willing to be that light, you're willing to be Rachma in the presence of something that appears absolutely chaotic, just because you walk up to someone, let's say that you haven't talked to in 20 years, because they thought you said that awful thing that you never said, just because you're willing to go up to that person and be in that conscious, active, and present love does not mean that they're going to go, ooh, look, roses and sunshine, let me hug you and kiss you, I forgive you. Okay, what's going to happen is you become a catalyst, that light is going to bring up anything unlike itself in that moment. The key for you is that you, number one, keep your breath moving, and you allow this process to happen. It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to look at you, and all of a sudden, it's going to be like, you know, this romantic comedy, and oh, you know, like Brooke or Bo Derek running down the beach in a bikini or something. It doesn't always work like that. The key is can you stay open? Can you have the first law in mind to be open in the moment of uh, all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength? And of course, I know he's going to run. Heart, of course, is the word liba in Aramaic, which means one way of saying is source of thinking, but it's more unconscious. What's happening below the surface? below the conscious level, all of your mind, which of course is your thought, all of your strength, and I wanted to say this because of this, that word strength in Aramaic is chaylak. Now interesting, chaylak is again chaya, which is the word life. And it's also resurrection and save and all these other things. Body, temple, church, haikla. Um, intriguingly, that if you look at that in Aramaic, it's not telling you to hold on with your strength. It ain't like hold on to Jesus. It's exactly the opposite. It's actually a willingness that when you let go and you allow, as I said, your temple to be open. What did Yeshua say before many of his healings? He said, Eitzvatach, be open. Meaning, drop whatever it is that's going on for you, your beliefs, what you think needs to happen, whatever you think you've got to let go of, just be open and the law of light will move through you. Remember the, the dots that I was pushing through with the pen and letting the light through? It's exactly the same process. Now, when you drop your own strength of trying to hold on, through your willingness, the strength of life itself will live through you. And that's what Yeshua was talking about. And that's the arita. That's the law of light that lives through you when you're open. And others will recognize that. Some, when they're in the presence of that, uh, it might not look so good, you know, if, well, I was going to say if Minnie Pearl walked into this room, not everybody would be happy. I think some of you would run because she died like 20 years ago. But what I'm saying is like, you know, the howdy, you know, and she had the hat with the tag on it. Not everybody likes to be around somebody like that. 
some people, that gets their hackles going because this starts resonating, all this stuff. Or Dolly Parton or somebody that's really wide open. Everybody knows someone that's wide open and you don't, maybe you don't quite feel comfortable being that open and you kind of shrink back. It's not going to change the catalyst or the fact that the law of light is in process, but it's do you know how to forgive what's coming up or do you not? And that's what the key is in the whole process. Or are you controlled by unconscious dynamics? Mm. If you come into that space where there is that flow of light, it's empowering. And when you get to new levels of vitality, what yesterday you were able to hold down all of a sudden starts to move. And if you're not able to or you don't have the tools to open that unconscious part of the mind, then you'll be run from that part of the mind. And it's interesting, you know, uh, the Nobel Prize was given to Freud for discovering the unconscious. Freud no more discovered the unconscious than fly in the air. You can go back to the Aramaic language and the whole representation of the unconscious is built even right into the language. For instance, there's a suffix in Aramaic that if you add it to a word, O-O-T-A, that means that something from the unconscious is controlling three things. Your perception, your decisions, and your behaviors. Anybody ever said to yourself after you did a behavior, I don't know why I did that? It's because it was run from something that was resonated in the unconscious. And if it's out of harmony with the truth of who you are, if you want to stop being run by your unconscious, you've got to be willing to crack open your unconscious, which is what Aramaic forgiveness does. You know, we're taught that forgiveness in this culture Virtually everyone's been taught that forgiveness is about how you did something terrible to me, but it's okay, I'll let you off the hook. And of course, I can let a million people off the hook for what's happening inside of me, and I've got nothing to address or change what's happening inside of me. Forgiveness in Aramaic, when you substitute in your mind in order to overcome generations and generations of deep level programming, that forgiveness is about letting them off the hook or letting yourself off the hook, Never forgive anybody ever again. Never forgive yourself for anything because you can't. You can pardon somebody. You can let somebody off the hook. You can let yourself off the hook, but that has nothing to do with forgiveness. Think the word remove when you think forgiveness. Now you're on track. Am I? Is there something moving from my center that's based in hostility or fear? Then I want to learn to be responsible and forgive that, remove that. Elsewise, it will run... My perception, which is the guide for my earthly life, my decisions. Decisions are things that cut us off from op options. You know, decide comes from the same root as suicide, homicide, fratricide. It means to cut off or to kill off. So when we're in decisions, we have the potential of the feedback of the whole of the creation guiding us and we're stuck in the nine-bit mind and whatever the nine-bit mind did yesterday it's going to prompt you to do today from that unconscious level. That's a decision. This thing is just a decision-making machine and it only knows how to replicate the past. There's no future in the past. It just plays out over and over and over again. And then because your decisions are made then your behaviors are established. I've come to believe that the unconscious 
is a totally unnatural condition for a human being. We are not designed to have an unconscious. That veil that they spoke about breaking down of the temple is our temple. It's not about a purple curtain in the church. And it is the barrier that we build when we hold our breath, refuse to allow the breath to move whatever's in us, show it to us, so that we can remove it if we choose to. So it becomes a whole different game when you see the application of these tools as opposed to a nice philosophy that speaks about nemosa, a result or a custom that you better live up to or you're going to get punished for it. Fear-based teachings. Nothing to do with the Creator. Nothing to do with love. You can go back into the Old Testament and you hear even back then, here's the Creator speaking to humans saying, fear is a commandment of men. It's a principle established by men. If anybody's talking to you about the Creator and brings anything to do with fear into the game, they're lying to you. Or they just don't know any better. But it's not, it's not accurate. It's their own unconscious dynamics. And it becomes the customs that are forced onto people. You better do this or you better do that. And you'll notice that most of those customs make a lot of money for the people who enforce them. If you've looked at the private prison system in America, you see the effect of the customs of the people and men making more and more rules to collect more and more money from more and more people's pockets. When we remove that unconscious dynamic and connect directly to the source, then we're not motivated to have to live out of that insanity because the unconscious is gone. Mm. Man, there's so many places to, to move in on that. Yeah. Um, Maybe we should do a month of this. We could do a month. Easily. Everybody else would then be out of the room. Then we'd have to do six months. Everybody, the room would be empty by then, but the two of us would still be in here just yak, 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 yak. No. Um, here's, there's just so much, there's so much rich, rich in there. Um, there was one thing in particular that you said that, I think we, we go get back to this at some point too, the Utah. Yes. Um, maybe tomorrow, but um, I wrote that down. Speaking of this, you know, this law of light and this being lived through, there's, a, there's an idea that has been foisted upon you. One of those is that fear God thing. That word is tadkal or tadkul. Kul means whole. Okay? Now let me explain what the tadkul or tadkul means. You know, like, let's say that you're walking in an alleyway and all of a sudden you get halfway in it and something goes crack and you go <gasps> remember what I talked about the pinnacle of the temple okay now your temple opens this is not fight or flight okay your temple opens up now you just had a catalyst brought into the system now if you're a person with all kinds of junk from the echoes of your hidden past that are based in fear, that's going to come up and all of a sudden you're going to realize you're scared faithless, right? But if when the, t the temple opens is, is a pretty, it's probably a pretty clear response, the temple opens up and you don't have the junk in there, what's actually happening? You're firing on all cylinders. Your temple's open. Ted Kula had nothing to do with fearing God. It had to do with your temple being open so that you are so in resonance with the whole that there's no separation. There is nothing to fear. 
and it's not even quite accurate that there's nothing to fear but fear itself. No, you don't even have to fear fear itself. Even that's a lie. It's a great line, I know. There's nothing to fear but fear itself. I love you, buddy, but um, he's a great man, but that one's not quite on. But he did, he did hit something close to the head. Now, here's the thing, though. This has a lot to do with something else that was foisted upon us, and that's the idea of original sin. And I mentioned a little, or I think I mentioned it, or maybe it was talking with someone that, you know, there's no such thing as original sin. Original sin is a myth. It's the thing in the garden that was the top-to-shot level metaphorical storyline. But sin and, well, let's say good, evil, and sin. I just want to say a little bit about this. Um, <clears throat> first of all, uh, there's no word in Aramaic and not even really in Hebrew for good. There's tuv. Now, here's the thing about tuv. This is one of the biggest issues that you have when you study first century meanings versus modern meanings. Because if you go, like as an example to me, a modern descendant Aramaic speaker like Syriac or whatever it is that you're finding, a Syrian, you're going to find today's meanings. You're not going to find first century meanings. And uh, I, I, I'm going to put this down. I just went, I had such an interesting experience. It was about five years ago when I uh, met a, a, a native uh, Assyrian Aramaic family and they told me about how they had such a pride in their culture because it was in the mid-19th century that they were started to bring the Aramaic language back and what they did was they laid the King James Bible next to their Aramaic Bible and they cross-referenced a 17th century translation from 1611 to find meaning in their own language. And I, like my whole being went, <sighs> it shuddered. And I'm like, well, that explains why I talk to some native Aramaic speakers today and they have no idea of the actual authentic first century roots. They have no idea what a lot of the meanings are. And then you got this, like, you know, California surfer Jesus coming and telling them deeper insights on that. Some don't take that kindly because they think I'm like... And here's the thing, though. I wasn't raised with it, so I'm able to see things that I think some people maybe wouldn't see. But this, this idea of sin and good and evil, that word that was translated as good, tuv, okay, is an interesting word. It doesn't mean good. There's no word for good, okay? Good is an interesting thing because as soon as you say, this is good, what does your mind do without you realizing it? This is bad. Your mind, probably almost every time, instantaneously kicks itself in half. Yeshua says, do not doubt. What does the word doubt mean? The word is tetplug in Aramaic, and, and tetplug means divide. Do not divide. Remain single. Now, you've got this word good. It could mean goodness. Goodness is interesting. Okay? Goodness is an interesting term because if I say she radiates goodness, that's not really a judgment so much as it's almost like an awareness of a process rather than some kind of stagnant judgment. Okay? I'm going to explain good and evil and sin to you right now with bananas. Okay? I've got three bananas here. You didn't know sin had anything to do with bananas, right? You had nothing. Nothing. Apples. Apples, too. But bananas, bananas are a little easier to pull this off with. Now, this one here is evil. Okay? It's not completely evil, but it's pretty evil. That one, that could be pretty evil. It's not completely evil, but that's pretty evil. This one here is pretty good. The one in the middle. What? So, good is this. What that word good means in Aramaic and Hebrew, what it means in any Semitic language, Akkadian, Phoenician, Sumerian, a lot of Semitic languages that people, you know, that are language experts have never even studied, it means ripe. Let's look at it this way. This green banana 
is going to be perfectly ripe at exactly 10 a.m. this Friday morning. It'll be perfectly ripe. Can I do that 100% accuracy? Is it possible? Nope. Now, how about this one? Can I say, okay, last Friday morning at exactly... Ooh. Let's try this way. Can I look at this one that looks overripe? This would be considered evil, bisha, which is also an archery term that means off-target. Okay, can I find this and look at it and say, okay, at exactly, at exactly 10 a.m. Friday morning, this was perfectly ripe. Can I do that with 100% accuracy? No. When's the only time you can judge fruit as being ripe? In the moment. It's right now. I'm going to bring it to my nose and I'm going to smell it, sink my teeth into it. Ripeness is only possible now. And that's what goodness means. The word good doesn't mean good as opposed to bad. It means fully, holy, ripe, and present in this moment. When Yeshua talked about ripe soil and arid soil, or bisha soil, he was talking about the difference between fully, holy, present in this moment, or not in the moment. The only thing that evil means is I'm not awake, I'm not aware right now in this moment. Okay? Now, intriguingly, the word sin is very close as well. Sin is the word chita, and what Cheta, sin means, is miss the mark. So you've got good, you've got evil, and you've got sin. And a lot of people don't even realize that the good and the evil that you've been fed through Christianity is actually a complete system of lies. Have, have you actually studied the history of it? Do you understand what I'm saying about ripeness, though, and good and evil? Good means open in the presence of the moment, ripe. Unripe, and this is much like a system you can look at on the... Let me show it on here briefly. You could say it's almost like a line, and this is a judgment, of course, and you could say that somewhere in here, when it's down here, it's evil. There's a green banana. When it's over here, it's evil. It's overripe. But when you are not in the future, not in the past, but wholly present in the space of this now moment, that's when you experience ripeness, and that's where goodness comes from, and that's the tuv that Yeshua spoke of, which is the root of an amazing word that sounds like this, tuvehun, which, and then we probably have to close after that. I'm going to turn it back to you, but yeah, we're tuvehun. So thinking in terms of the target, when I fired, and, and sin is an Aramaic word, that when I fire at the target and I miss the bullseye, the scorekeeper yells, sin. I'm off the mark. When they said the wages of sin is death, it had nothing to do with God's going to get you for your sins. If you put enough energies that are off the mark into a cell, the cell starts to fall apart. When you get enough cells falling apart, the organs involved fall apart. Enough of that happens and the structure won't support life. Miss the target altogether and it's evil. Evil. Two different meanings. Another of... Here's a piece of fruit that isn't ripe. We're all, in the Aramaic sense, in that Aramaic sense, evil. We're all unripe. Who of us is finished? Mm. We're in process. And then Tuvehun speaks of the fact that that which will take us to fullness or ripeness, the Creator planted in us from the beginning. You know, and you think about this word, and it's Yeshua's first public teaching, and he repeats it over and over and over again in the Beatitudes. Tuvehun, Tuvehun. And the Greeks translate it as blessed are they. But there's no such thing as 
some sort of a blessing is going to come along to you. But rather, what is being said there is that there is in you a latent neural structure. It's latent because it's been overlaid with the thumbprints of hostility or fear. And the Beatitudes are an instruction set for how to activate that which was placed in you from the beginning that has been made latent by your hostilities and fears. And when you bring that from that latent or unconscious state into awareness or just below the surface, then that becomes the source of your perception. So an attitude of mind based in love becomes your conscious possession. You who, and then each of the Beatitudes is a set of instructions. One of the ways we know of the primacy of the Aramaic, you know, don't expect the Greek scholars to rush out really soon and say, oh yes, that's right, it was all Aramaic, because that means that that which is based in the Greek has to be shoveled out and you've got to start over. But this one line where we're told that we're supposed to be now, here's a man who's saying, I come to connect you to the spirit of truth, and now somebody wants to convince you to be poor in that spirit. Does that make any sense? The word there is not poor, but home. Do you have your home in the eternal forces from God, or do you have your home in the mind of Adam, Adamos, the red clay, carbon-based memory, the anti, the thing that goes against living in the mind of the wholeness, which was called the mind of Christ, is that which is stored in carbon-based memory, the Antichrist. The only thing that will ever take you out of the mind of wholeness that you be came in with is the thumbprints that are put upon you and the things in your genetics that are activated by that and become the base of your perception. Forgiveness means you remove that and the first of the Beatitudes having your home in these eternal forces. Again, you just, you go, there's so many cases now where you go to the ancient Aramaic and then you listen to the latest that physics and medicine is coming up with and it's perfectly identical. And so the physicists are saying every molecule in the universe, do you suppose, just from a strictly physics point of view, that you'd be better off receiving information from every molecule in the universe and being aware of that and be able to use that or would you be better off in your 9-bit mind? Pretty clear, and that's physics. That's, that's modern, you know, that's Harvard information, nine bits of information. So this beatitude says one of the ways that you activate the neural structure implanted in you to guide you to happiness and well-being, you don't have to make it up, it's in there, it's already yours, is that your home is in these eternal forces from the Creator. Where do you live? Do you live in your nine-bit mind? If you do, then you notice there's lot, there are lots of reasons to be hostile and fearful. Of course, all those reasons are internal, but when they move in us, we paint pictures on the inside of our eyeballs that convince us that the reason we're in that hostility or fear is external. And that hostility and fear is literally our cellular disease. When we understand the first law, we go back to Rachma, we live with the active presence of love moving in us, and that becomes the flow of energy that heals all disease and is the source of all healing.